Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett. In this series, we want to demystify the worlds of finance and investment. We're going to be speaking with industry experts, strategists, fund managers, and financial planners. We'll hear from investment professionals who are at the top of their game, but also entrepreneurs who need investment, technology specialists disrupting the world of investment, and good old-fashioned active allocators of capital. In this episode, we are talking about property. Uh, my guest is Rory Penn. Rory is a partner and head of Knight Frank's private office here in London. Um, he's had an interesting career and his expertise spanned both the commercial and residential side of property. Um, and I think if I was a super high net worth private client, uh, in well, perhaps when I'm a super high net worth private client looking at prime property, um, you know, Rory is exactly the kind of guy I want on my side. He was a great guest um, and clearly he's had front row seats in what has been a pretty tumultuous year in property. He has interesting views on the city versus country property trade, um, ESG in property investment, and we discuss what his clients are worried about. Um, I thoroughly recommend checking out the content they produce at Knight Frank in their wealth report. Um, go to knightfrank.com forward slash wealth report. But without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security. Rory Penn, welcome to the podcast. Rory, can I start with how did you start your career? It's a good question. It feels like quite a long time away now. So I read economics at university, which was great, and it gave me a fairly kind of broad start to my life. Went to work for Grosvenor, which is the Duke of Westminster's property company, the Grosvenor Estate, which is based in London. Went there as a non-cognate, so without a property degree. Trained over the first couple of years as a Chartered Surveyor, passed my Chartered Surveyor exams um, back in 2005, and worked for Grosvenor on their London Estate, which is about 100 acres of Mayfair and 200 acres of Belgravia, quite a sizable estate, as well as developments all around the UK. And they're, they're also obviously very international. The, the highlight for me was um, buying land up in Liverpool for their big project, Liverpool One, where they're redeveloping the city centre, which is a 42-acre plot in, in central Liverpool. So I spent three years at Grosvenor on the commercial side and finished off working for their fund management business before I moved on from there. Okay, so then when did you where did you go from there? So from the Grosvenor estate? I went to work for two different fund managers in real estate. The first one was called Rowan Asset Management, which was a, a private fund manager. And we we were investing a lot of Irish capital. So it was either Irish pension fund money or Irish high net worth capital into the London and UK market. And then we formed a, a German retail strategy after that. So it was kind of UK and European fund business. And then from there to Palmer Capital, which is a private equity and, and venture capital firm. They invest discretionary capital for... Aviva and Schroders and the Duchy of Lancaster and, and various other institutional investors and endowments into the UK real estate market. So it was a very fun place to work. And so then from there, did you come to, to um, Knight Frank? No, from there, I decided to go and run my own business and to be an advisor, which was something I wanted to do for a while. So a, a friend and I set up a business called Van Han, which we set up in, in 2012. And we ran for six years together. It was a, essentially a, a private client real estate advisory firm. So we bought and sold residential and commercial for clients, generally focused on, on prime markets, so the top end of the London market. So mm-hmm. 
buying Which I suppose was your background, given the growth experience. It, it was an area I was very comfortable with. I'd always been on the investment side or the fund management side to date, and it gave me a, a very good perspective to, to be an advisor, to be an agent, but having been a principal, having been a client for so long, so the underwriting was all very familiar to me. The processes, the investment committee process that a, a fund or a, or a big family office would go through to buy something was 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 very normal. So we, we had a really fun time buying and selling in the London market for a variety of different family offices and, and private clients. Mm-hmm. We we sold a hospital, council hospital in Harley Street to an institution for a for a private client. We sold Fulham Town Hall, wonderful building, obviously in Fulham opposite um, Fulham Broadway tube station, and we sold some some very big ticket residential assets, trophy houses and, and penthouses. And let's think about this year. Um, this year has been a rather bizarre year, particularly in, in, um, in market, well, equity markets for us, but uh, property markets for you. Um, what are the trends that you're seeing in, in prime and super prime this year in London? Let's start with London. Let's start with London. I was thinking about this earlier. It's all about perspective, I think, in the London market right now. And I think to understand this here, you almost need to go back four or five years. So the peak of the London residential market, just focusing on residential, was early 2015. So since then, London has come down in value roughly 20%. So prime central London residential is down about 20%. We had a very uncertain year in 2019. Policy uncertainty was very high. It's the most uncertain year on record since policy uncertainty has been measured since 1996 because of Brexit, because of election uncertainty, threat of a change of government. And Uncertainty is not good for real estate markets. So 2019 was a fairly illiquid year for us. And we saw the lowest levels of sales over 10 million, which is super prime for us in the last five years. So both values were down and sales volumes were down. But then we had a very strong election win for Boris Johnson. That bought us, that was just before Christmas, that brought us into 2020. January, February and March were very strong in the London residential market. We saw a, a Boris bounce, a pickup in positive sentiment, a pickup in clients who, quite frankly, probably hadn't been able to invest or buy what they wanted for the last three or four years, or were just too nervous about what lay ahead. So January, February, March, we saw 30 sales over 10 million, which was up from 18 the year before. So a significant uptick at the top end of the market. And then March the 23rd arrived, and that was lockdown. And that's when everyone went home. It was um, illegal to do viewings. It was illegal to show a property. And, and everyone was sat at home both advisors and agents, but also our clients, wondering what next. And it was eight, nine weeks of no market activity, night frank. Quite a scary time, I would imagine. So that's April, that takes us through April, May, June. Time. Exactly. And our financial year started on the 1st of April. So we sat there in lockdown wondering what, what the next 12 months looked like. But we were high on engagement levels. We spent a lot of time talking to clients about what this meant for them and the values of the properties, both commercial and residential. But we came out of lockdown and what we hadn't realised is how much pent-up demand there was. A lot of our clients went home, spent that eight weeks online, often on our website, looking at wonderful homes in London or the country or even international and thinking that actually it was time to do something, that the four or five years of reducing liquidity of of falling values in the London market it was time to, to call it and we came out of lockdown and we still have a 44% increase in, in the number of buyer registrations over our five-year average. Wow. So there's been a significant uptick. The, the result has been a very buoyant house market in particular. So one of the trends we've seen 
has been the number of buyers looking for family homes in London. So the markets that have performed particularly well since lockdown for us have been Chelsea, Kensington, Notting Hill, St. St. John's Wood and Hampstead, all very house-heavy, good family markets, great schools nearby, and education still being that that pull for London. And when you cut through all the noise of, of currency and debt and buying opportunities, education is still such a strong driver in the London market. So we should never underestimate that. So the key trend for us were buyers coming back to the market, buyers are getting younger. That's another thing we've noticed. That's not a COVID trend, but if you look back over the last five years, over 10 million, the average age of buyers is now below the age of 50, which is really encouraging to see all this new money coming into the market. And that's a combination of younger entrepreneurs, tech IPOs, whatever it might be, or next generation capital taking over and just looking to buy a a really good family home in, in London earlier. So the average age going back to 2015 was, was probably late 60s, and it's now below the age of 50. So significant change there. So key trends have been very international markets for a number of years. This year has been much more British and European because of travel restrictions, buyers getting younger, and the house market being very popular. Interesting. So we've talked about the London, London market. What about um, how the London market has performed relative to the country markets? And has there been, I mean, we, hear, we read stories, a lot of stories about you know, people sitting at home and, and wishing that the, the view outside was, was better and the view they could sort of uh, go for walks in fields rather than being sort of stuck in their, 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 their place in London. It's, it's very true and we've got all the data to back that up. But actually, anecdotally, which I always think is more interesting, is just the number of friends that were calling me during lockdown saying, it's time to leave. I've been living in London for so long either the husband or wife um, working in London, convinced that they needed to be in central London as a fund manager, as an analyst, as, as a lawyer, whatever they might be, realising that, that Zoom and Microsoft Teams do work in the country. They're still staying engaged with their clients. So we've seen a lot of people looking to move. That's been that's provided a boost for the London market as more stock has come to the market and an obvious boost for the country market. So Anecdotally, we bought four houses out, four nice houses out in, in Hampshire at a kind of certain price point in, in June, and all four went under off on, on the first weekend. But still, interestingly, still sort of commuter land. Still, uh, still commuter land. And a lot of our clients have gone to traditional commuter belt, but a lot are still, I think, looking a bit further. And this may be one of the trends that is accelerated. We, we keep talking on a residential side and commercial side about the acceleration of trends that we're seeing during lockdown. The, the very obvious one is everyone is now on Zoom and or Microsoft Teams and or finds a way to communicate much more freely on a video call than they than they did 12 months ago. And it's very commonplace for people to, to get an entire team online and to go through whatever the team agenda is online with everyone's face on the screen rather than having to have a team meeting. And whether you're looking to move a bit further afield to Somerset or or beyond, I think we're seeing clients prepared to go a bit further than the traditional community. And models. not be too worried about transport hubs and things like that? Or, or I mean, is that still a consideration? It's still a consideration. And we don't yet know what the new norm will look like. What we mustn't assume, and I know we might touch on commercial later, but we mustn't assume that the office is dead because... You and I are sitting here in London now. I'm still working from our, our headquarters in London. The office is still where teams want to meet. It's where, where a lot of our clients want to come and see us. But there will be a new balance. And I think that balance will be really important from a work and life perspective. So people will be prepared to live a bit further away. They will be prepared to be a bit further away from a transport hub. 
But I think key hubs are still going to be a, a big draw for people moving to the country. Interesting. And do you, um, what are the, your sort of clients' key concerns? Because, um, you know, I mean, there must be a, a degree of sort of hand-holding when they're about to part with a sort of life-changing amount of, uh, of, of capital. Um, what are their sort of key concerns when, they're, when you're going through that process? It's a really good question. And I think it depends who the client is and what stage of life they're at or or the rationale for purchase of whatever they're looking to do or, or sell. I think some of our um, clients are still nervous about the impact of the pandemic and how long it's going to go on for, how deep the rabbit hole is. And there are, of course, headwinds still out there to do with the pandemic, the economy, uh, to do with potentially property markets, tax changes. There have been um, talks recently about changes to tax, and that's certainly been the case for the last seven or eight years. I think when um, Osborne started changing the regime on the stamp duty side, it, it started a cascade of, of a change to all things relating to tax, be it inheritance tax or capital gains, um, but particularly stamp duty. There's always a threat of, of future changes, and that will be a concern for, for some clients. Currency is what it is at the moment, and that seems to be fairly favourable for our international buyers buying in London, although we've seen a bit of appreciation in sterling recently. Debt has remained fairly consistent for a number of years now, and debt is... Debt at, at sort of um, customer level. At a customer right. level. So yeah. they're, they're more their loan to value. Exactly. The loan to value and the interest rates that they can get. And we have banks um, knocking each other out of the way to lend to our clients at the moment at really quite sensible rates. And our clients are therefore able to lock in for five, ten years at rates that traditionally you would have maybe been offered for one to two years. Mm-hmm. So debt is probably not on the table as a key concern right yeah. now. It's interesting that though. So how, to what extent has that, that cost of capital, the cost of capital coming down, to what extent does that drive the, the property market in London? Uh, and let's think about London ra- um, rather than a sort of more sort of structural supply and demand dynamic. I think finance is the fuel that has always helped drive property markets and that is particularly the case now. I Since various mortgage reviews and changes to the mortgage structure in the last decade, there is less debt in the system than there would have been, say, during the GFC in 07 and 08. So I don't sense and I don't have the data that we're over leveraged as a, as a city uh, in terms of London. A lot of our overseas buyers, some of them will be buying in, in equity. They may then refinance afterwards. But I, I don't sense that there's an over leveraged position at a retail level, but I may be wrong. But there is no doubt the finance is helping buyers pay a little bit more and to get onto the ladder at whatever stage of the, the ladder they're looking to get into the game on. So as always, and I think it's always been the case, but go back to 1989 when interest rates were 15.6%, well, they're now between one and one and a half, depending on how long you're borrowing for. They're pretty sensible. So there's no doubt that, that finance is helping fuel the real estate market. Yeah, interesting. And um, so you've talked a little bit about a younger a younger client. Are there any other trends that you're seeing um, in terms of, so, and you also touched on more domestic rather than international, are there any other trends in terms of the type of client that you're seeing and what they're demanding? That's a really good question. And we would have answered it differently pre-COVID and pre-lockdown. So last year in London, over 10 million, 88% of the buyers were international. 
which is a, which is a huge percentage and and worrying, 88, 88, 88, yeah. and worrying to some that it's that high. And there are a lot of buyers from the US, from the Middle East, um, almost 20% of the buyers were from Asia. And Asia is where a lot of the growth is being created globally at the moment. And in our wealth report, we look at ultra high net worth creation, so wealth creation around the world. And we are forecasting a 44% increase in the number of ultra high net worths in Asia in the next five years. Have you had to change your business model as a result? I mean, have you had to get, you know, reach out and have offices out in, in Asia selling to the Asian market, different to selling to the domestic? Yes, we've had to adapt our business model, but it's been evolving anyway. We're, we have offices in 57 countries, which is, which is great. And from my perspective, I'm part of the private office team and we have a big team in London and a team in the Middle East, a team in France and in, in Paris and a team in Australia. So in terms of where we manage day to day our wealthy private clients, that's what we're doing. But in London, we have an ambassador strategy where everyone in the team covers a wealth hub. So we, we go four times a year to the 13 top wealth hubs globally, which include New York and Monaco and Geneva and Hong Kong and Singapore and India and the UAE and, and Saudi, because that's where the capital is coming from. And we've just added China to our ambassador list. So that is our reaction to this changing and ever more international world. The way it, you, you see cultural trends from different countries and the way we engage with our Asian clients might be different to the way we engage with our US clients, but the common theme is wealthy international clients who are more tech savvy, more digital, want high levels of engagement from us, will happily jump on a plane tomorrow to come look at something if they like it, but the engagement will probably start on on a phone call or and they'll want to see the information through through WeChat or through WhatsApp primarily. So the, the channels are changing, the way we engage with international clients is changing. Interesting. Let's change tack and let's think about the commercial side. Um, are you what sort of trends are you seeing? Um, and let's go. Let's take twenty twenty difficult year. What sort of trends are you seeing on the commercial side, and specifically how are your clients thinking about commercial um, investments? There is there is an evolution anyway happening, in my opinion, in the commercial markets. And back to the acceleration of trends, I think twenty twenty will prove to be an accelerator of some of those trends that were already happening. So the easy one to point at is the fact that the retail market is evolving. And in the UK now, 29% of all sales, consumer sales are online. That figure has gone up from zero over the last two or three decades, but but two or three years ago, it was probably down at 20%. So acceleration trend, well, during lockdown, everything was online and a lot of people became very familiar with buying online. Retail will come under pressure as an investment asset class. And it has been under pressure for a while. In my opinion, Prime and best-in-class retail will continue to perform. So what would that be? What uh, prime and best-in-class? So in, in London, you'd be looking at actually most of the best retail owned by the, the key estates. So, for, for example, Cadogan have Duke of York Square. They have Pavilion Road, which is meant to be more of a community street. They have some of the best luxury retailers on Sloane Street at the north end of, of Sloane Street. That is, that is luxury retail. That is best-in-class. And with this global wealth creation, they're likely to continue to perform because there will always be demand, in, in our opinion, for for luxury retail because of the lifestyle element of shopping. But secondary and tertiary retail, which might be a, a back street in the wrong part of town, 
won't necessarily have tenant demand in the future because a lot of those sales will have gone online because the cost of running a, a small retail shop are obviously very high compared to the distribution model. So the trend we've seen in retail has been some of that capital move from retail into the logistics market. So the, the easy way to see it is, is that retail spend going into the Amazon warehouse. And an Amazon warehouse tends to be tends to need three times more space than the shop would need in the middle of town. So whilst more real estate is being used, that real estate might be on a junction on the M4. It may be at Reading, a, a huge Tesco's distribution warehouse or an Amazon warehouse. That's more likely to be of interest to some of our some of our investors in commercial real estate than traditional retail. I mean, there is an argument, I suppose, that capital can move faster than planners. And how hard is it to repurpose some of the, that sort of um, retail stock into sort of commercial to, to fulfil more sort of commercial or industrial needs? It's a very good question, and um, developers and investors have have long enjoyed working with planners to try and achieve change and enjoyed enjoyed. I think would be a um, bold, terrible <laughs> way of saying it. I I sense at the moment that there's very good awareness amongst local councils, in particular, that the high street is changing. I'm not going to say dying because a lot of high streets are thriving, and every time one shop goes bust or goes into administration, you may find a very good coffee shop pops up or, or another use. So I think we will see an evolution. Councils generally have their eyes open and are aware to that. They do not want to see their, their community hubs fall apart. So Where does the responsibility lie? Is it at council level, councillor level? Is that where the sort of the, um, uh, most of the sort of planning direction comes from? Or is it separate to there are national policies and there are local policies, and I, I won't get drawn on that because I'm not a planning yeah. expert. It, it would be somewhere between national and local, but it, often in partnership with local landowners. Yeah. So the conversations need to happen, and generally if people work together, they can create a, a repurposing agenda, such as the Liverpool scheme I worked on, yeah. which was ultimately government-led because... There was a compulsory purchase order, which is which has to come from the government. But the local council in Liverpool wanted to see urban regeneration. Now it had to be financed by a private firm and a fund, and that's where Gravener came in. And that that was a great example of complete regeneration, but a partnership ultimately between the private sector and, and the public sector. I think we will see a repurposing of a lot of assets when some of the big shopping centres, when their values meet um, a, a sensible residual value, where they could be redeveloped into something else. I think we'll see owners want to jump on that space. So, so retail will remain of interest at the right value. Some of it will be will remain retail and remain best in class, and there will be tenants in the future, of course, because shops are not going anywhere. But there will be some repurposing of less relevant retail. Yeah, I see. Um, well, that's good. To, I mean, you could see. I mean, glass half full. You could see a, a, a sort of regeneration of the high street um, if you know planners allowed and and you can. You, um, you know, you don't only you're not only going to the high street to the sort of to see the top brands. Okay, so the same question on the as, as I asked on the resi side. How are your clients thinking about commercial real estate against that backdrop? I think they are wide-eyed and looking to understand what these evolutions will will look like. We we ran some analysis, a, a kind of financial model actually in conjunction with Goldman Sachs on asset allocations into real estate. So we looked at where clients are invested at the moment 
uh, which sectors they're in. And it was roughly 37% offices, I think it was for 20% retail, industrial and logistics were a small section, and about 35% in specialist sectors. So residential is an investment class, student, healthcare, automotive, etc. And the longer term trend we were looking at, and it's about a 10 year model, was we were expecting some of private capital and private equity to move in part out of offices and retail around the, the kind of pie chart into more logistics and more specialist sectors. So I think some of our clients are looking at it in that respect. They're saying, what does my portfolio look like now? Is it future-proofed? Is it robust and resilient for the changing world? It's not just the changing real estate market, the changing world with more younger tech buyers coming in from Asia with changing retail, with students going up and down on a daily basis. Where do I want my portfolio to, to be in the next five to 10 years? Mm-hmm. And, and then start looking at repositioning. And some of the most interesting conversations I've had with family offices in the last three or four months have been about exactly that, which is just looking with a, a truly open mind at the profile of a portfolio now mm-hmm. and from a geographical perspective, from an asset perspective and saying, is this what you want from your portfolio? Is this going to achieve what you and the family want in the next 10, 20, 30 years? Because sometimes it's a multi-generational conversation and you may have a younger family member saying, it's all going online, we need more logistics. And you, you may have older family members saying, actually, we want to invest into land and rewilding and ESG is, is absolutely front and centre of so many of our clients. So the conversations are hugely varied. They're, they're very open. A lot of our clients are so experienced in real estate that they, a lot of them know what they want. But there are different agendas. And it may be a short-term agenda to shore up a portfolio to ensure that the rent is being collected and they've got the right tenants and they're extending leases where they need to extend them or or moving tenants on where they're not fit, right right for that that area, or they're saying big picture we want to diversify, and we've seen we sold a bit of land in Australia last year, which was um, wonderful sixteen cattle stations in Northern Territory in Queensland, and the total size of land was was one and a half times the size of Switzerland. You know that's a major land portfolio with four hundred thousand head of cattle on it. That ultimately was of interest to private capital because of diversification and you're buying land in a wonderful part of Australia but also the the cattle are provides beef beef is being sold to Indonesia average beef price is being up eight percent a year so sometimes our clients look beyond just pure bricks and mortar at ESG or land or rewilding for other purposes. So you touch on ESG. What what would be what are the sort of I mean, if you have a client who comes to you and say, look, I want to divert, I want to um, diversify my portfolio. What options are on the table for them? So you mentioned real rewilding. How how would how they get into an investment like that? Rewilding doesn't tend to be a financial investment. Mm-hmm. It's more of a um, passion mm-hmm. investment, but depending on which part of ESG really interests our clients. And we know that from an investment management perspective, ESG is, is firmly on the agenda, I would assume for a lot of your clients. But the easy place to look at ESG, for example, would be the environmental side, would be buying a, a Briam excellent building. So a best-in-class, environmentally future-proofed building. And as time goes on, the rules, the legislations are changing to enforce developers to build to better quality standards and tenants to want to occupy better quality buildings. And I can't imagine a leading occupier in the future 
even one of the big global tech firms, a Facebook or an Apple or an, or an Amazon, not wanting to be in a Briam excellent building, an best-in-class building, with a big stamp and reception saying this is a best-in-class building. And that building will attract better quality employees. It will attract a high rent for the landlord. It will be future-proof for the future. It will attract a low yield ultimately when it comes to selling. So it is now <clears throat> the ESG agenda is, is stacking up financially, which is really important. It's not just something on a CSR policy that we're seeing our clients wanting to kind of tick. We are seeing financial rigour in, in this space. So there are lots of areas in, in real estate where I think our clients will start. Investing. And then a sort of specific question on, on the future of the office. Um, are you getting um, questions from your clients around, um, you know, we can, uh, is there a danger that uh, this may become some stranded assets almost um, if they have high exposure to offices? This is probably the most talked about yeah. uh, topic with so many of our clients and we all could have dialed into 101 webinars on this in the last six months if we wanted to. We do not see the office market dying at all. We see it evolving, um, which is probably a, a fudge for the question. But the second lockdown finished, anecdotally, so many of our staff and our employees wanted to get back into the office. They wanted to re-engage at a personal level with their team members. And, and brand and corporate identity often comes from people working together. It is possible that clients will want to occupy buildings, but in a different way. They will want more space, that people will want to feel safe in their new offices. The question for all of us is, is working out how long this pandemic will go on for and how long that our occupational decisions are influenced by the pandemic. I think for the next year or two, they definitely will be. And I think we'll see less occupiers committing to, to large floor plates on a long-term basis. But I could see in three, four, five years' time, business getting back to normal, but there being a slight quirk. We are going to become more dynamic. We're going to become more flexible. There will be a change in the way we use offices. There may be um, larger meeting rooms. Um, there, there may be more space between the desks. And there will probably be more breakout areas. And I think a lot of these changes are probably for the better. There will certainly be more tech-enabled offices. Um, every meeting room should have all of the best equipment for, for video calls and the like. So we see the office market remain resilient. It's possible that best-in-class offices will remain best-in-class and the really good offices will remain popular with clients and that will demand higher rents. And secondary offices that are either not, that don't tick the, the ESG box or aren't compliant for various other reasons may suffer. So I think we could see some bifurcation in the, in the office market where the good gets better. The ponder drive from the outside in, I think, oh, in the office market. Um, and final question, are you, um, if you were giving advice to some of our younger uh, listeners um, you know, who may be coming out of university or at sort of associate level, um, what advice would you give to them? There are a number of different ways of getting into the property market and I've been lucky enough to work on the client and the fund management side and then on the agency side. So I've, I've seen both younger graduates tend to come into the industry either working for one of the big agencies Knight Frank, Savile, CBRE, Jones Lang, where there's a graduate training program and you can become trained as a chartered surveyor and you set your APC and then you become a MRICS, you, you get your actual qualification. And other graduates are going in to work for the big investors and owners. It might be a listed company such as British Land or Land Securities, or it might be a private company such as Grosvenor. Those are the more traditional routes. 
but there's there are also lots of other smaller operators, either smaller advisory firms or developers around the country, and it's certainly not just a London game, who would love to take young, enthusiastic people on. So a more traditional route would be to work for someone who offers a training programme, if that's the route someone's looking to take to become a chartered surveyor. But there are lots of other fun ways of, of working in the sector. I would want to work for a firm that had a good career structure, that had diversity, um, that had business balance, and that's so important for so many firms, where there was equal opportunity for everyone, but also a firm that could help me build my career in either residential or commercial. Yeah. And then in terms of specialising or being more general, at what point do you think in your career do you think you need to sort of specialise? That's a really good question. I'm not sure what the answer is. Most people spend the first three, four, five, six years learning the ropes, working out how the industry works, building a specialism as a child surveyor, but then they may be more financially savvy and enjoy the cash flow element. They may be a, a, a trader and like doing deals or might enjoy asset or investment management. So I think it's working out which area you're likely to want to work in. Most people after four, five, six years will, will start specialising and you tend to specialise at a top level on either residential or commercial. And then below those two, there are subsectors so on the commercial side, you might go into logistics or as they call them sheds in the industry into offices into retail or into other um, all the other specialist sectors on the residential side you could either go into asset investment management you could go into agency and advisory consultancy or, or development so there's lots of different areas to go into but most people by I'd say if we use age as a as a proxy kind of circa 30 have, have started working out where they want to be in the sector. Rory Ben, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, Rory Penn from Knight Frank. As I said at the beginning, do check out the Knight Frank Wealth Report at knightfrank.com forward slash wealth report. If you've enjoyed this episode, well, then like it, uh, or maybe subscribe to the series, um, and yeah, tell your friends. Thank you.